Canon Press presents the weekly sermon from Christ Church, Moscow, Idaho. Copyright 2019. If you would like to find out more about Canon Press materials and products, please call 1-800-488-2034. For a complete list of our products or to order online, please visit our website at canonpress.com. Enjoy the sermon. So all God's people said, Amen. let us rise and worship the triune God. Bless the Lord who forgives our sins. Luke 11 verse 2 says, And he said unto them, When you pray, say, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so in earth. So lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, the seraphim cover their eyes at the brightness of your glory. Moses was only permitted to see the backside of your glory. Job declared that these are the parts of your ways, but how little a portion is heard of you, but the thunder of you, of your power, who can understand? In one of David's Psalms, he proclaims, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain unto it. In Isaiah's prophecy, he states that your thoughts are not our thoughts, neither are our ways your ways. You indeed, Lord, are great in glory, power, majesty, and splendor. And we would do well to let our words be few in your presence, the presence of the Most High God. But you have invited us near and have made known unto us the mystery hid for ages and generations, Christ in us, the hope of glory. And by your spirit, you've made us able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. And so to you, almighty God, with the Son and the Holy Ghost, be all honor and glory, world without end, and amen. Amen. The sulks are just the worst. And we know how ugly and irksome it is that the sulks are in children. They ask for candy, the answer is no. And what follows is the lower lip sticking out like a slug on the forest floor of the Amazon jungle. The little one is denied what he wanted. And so because his imagined joy is disappointed, he'll now make sure that everyone else's joy is, is dis disappointed as well. The sulks in a child are, of course, foolish, sinful, and should be corrected. Largely because if the foolishness of sulkiness is not driven from the heart of a child, when they become an adult, they will no longer have the sulks, they will be a sulk. A sulk is never pleased and lets everyone else know it. The waitress at the restaurant gets an earful from him. The boss knows all his excuses. His wife gives a wide berth to his moodiness. His children must clamor for his attention or else cower before his volcanic eruptions. The cause of the sulks is largely envy. He didn't get his way in the meeting. He didn't receive the promotion. She wasn't awarded the prize she was sure she deserved. He was turned down by the girl he'd set his eye on. Her crush asked her best friend out instead of her. But the cure for the sulks is contentment. Uh, the Romanian pastor, Richard Wormbrand, imprisoned for refusing to affirm the communist platform, once described a worship service in the prison this way. He said, we clanged our chains together for our musical accompaniment. The irrepressible joy of salvation in Christ is the antidote to the sulks. Are you in danger of becoming a sulk? Then flee from the self-absorption of envy 
and gaze upon the lovely glory that God sent his son to die for this sad race of sulks. Luke 11.4 says, And forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Father God, our nation is afflicted with a collective sulkiness. Our envy has led us to rack up credit card debt, thoughtlessly watch the pornified movies of our culture, and generally discontent, and generally be discontent with everything and everyone. Our life hasn't gone like we planned, so we want the government to do something about it. We want all the pleasure and none of the responsibility. We want the joy, but without any obedience. We want a crown, but not the cross. All of this stems from our lack of faith. We don't believe that with you is the fountain of life, and we've refused to drink from the river of your pleasures, settling instead for the parched throat of envious and discontented sulkiness. If we in the church regard this sin in our own hearts or in our own lives, we know this prayer will be ineffectual. So we now confess our individual sins to you now, and Selah. We do this in Jesus' mighty name, and amen. amen. Let us rise for the assurance of God's pardon. Luke eleven thirteen says, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? God delights to give, and this should cure us of all discontentment and sulkiness. When we ask, he is promised to give, and what he gives is himself, the source of all joy and gladness. You've asked for pardon, and so as a minister of the gospel, I declare unto you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. The sermon text today is taken from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. These are the words of God. My son, forget not my law, but let thine heart keep my commandments. For length of days and long life and peace shall they add to thee. Let not mercy and truth forsake thee. Bind them about thy neck. Write them upon the table of thine heart. So shalt thou find favor and good understanding in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It shall be health to thy navel and marrow to thy bones. Honor the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruits of all thine increase. So shall thy barns be filled with plenty and thy presses shall burst out with new wine. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father, the son in whom he delighteth. Our God and Father, we ask that you would pour out your spirit upon us now. We ask for your spirit, the spirit of your, you and your Son, the spirit of the Father and the Son, that it would be upon us and rest upon us and fill our hearts. We pray that you would empower your word and so empower us to walk before you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't remember a time when I did not love Jesus. 
Maybe you know that feeling too. Maybe you've grown up in the church and you don't remember a time when you did not love Jesus either. One of my earliest memories is when my dad became convinced of covenant theology. Uh, he was sure I was already a Christian, so I was interviewed for membership in an Orthodox Presbyterian church by a couple of elders when I was four years old. How many of you children are four? Are there any four-year-olds here? There are no four-year-olds in the room. Somehow I don't believe that. I was four. I still remember my, my mom taking me to that interview and sitting down and explaining to the pastor and the elder that I believed that Jesus had died for my sins and I was forgiven and I was going to heaven when I died. I was, so I was baptized and became a member. I started taking communion shortly thereafter. I've always loved singing worship songs and hymns since as long as I can remember. Uh, in, in the early days we lived in Southern California, uh, John Frame, some of you will know that name, was my worship pastor. He and my dad uh, led worship in the early days. John Frame was on the piano, my dad was on the guitar. I, I've always known the presence of the Holy Spirit through the many times I've been convicted of sin. I remember getting angry at some neighborhood friends on one occasion. I rode my bike furiously away from them, and I wiped out about 100 yards down the street. And in my seven-year-old heart, I knew that God had thrown me down and was disciplining me. And so I got back up, all skinned up, and I went back to my friends to ask their forgiveness. Are there any seven-year-olds here? There's a seven-year-old. We have one seven-year-old in the room. Two. A handful. One of the first times I remember sharing the gospel with someone was a neighborhood boy in Alaska who prayed with me and my brother to receive Christ. I think I was about nine. Are there any nine-year-olds here? I'm not sure about nine-year-olds. No nine-year-olds. I just picked all the wrong ages. No, it's just that's, God picked those ages. The reason I knew and cared to share the gospel with the neighborhood boy was because of how God had ministered to me through my dad, who is an OPC pastor. He often took me around with him when I was young, and we would knock on doors and share the gospel with people, random, poor, random people. And we would invite them to church. Sometimes we would walk through the park and share the gospel with the people in the park. Sometimes we set up literature tables in the mall or at the county fair. We'd share the gospel with people. So much of my testimony is bound up in the story of my dad and before him, grandfathers, but it's also pastors and elders. Sometimes I say that when the Lord brought me here as a 17-year-old, it was because God knew that I needed about four more dads, and so he gave them to me. I want you to hold that just thought for a moment. When someone tells their testimony, this is sort of a summary of how I would tell my testimony, you might be starting to think about how you tell your testimony. 
some of your earliest memories of knowing Jesus or what it meant to be a Christian. I want you to hold that thought for a minute, and I want to come back to it in a few minutes. I want to come back to it maybe in a somewhat circuitous way using this text from Proverbs 3. Many of you have probably memorized chunks of Proverbs 3. I remember my mom teaching it to me as, as a little boy and memorizing particularly verses 5 and 6. The question though that I want to ask to frame this message is, has to do with the first verse of chapter 3, where the dad says, my son, forget not my law, but let thine heart keep my commandments. And, and the question I want to ask is, wait a second, why does the dad say, my law? Isn't it God's law? Hold on, Solomon. Who, who do you think you are? And, and, and then he repeats it. Let thine heart keep my commandments. And then he has the audacity to even add to it, verse 2, for length of days and long life and peace will they add to thee. How can a human father, a, fa a fallen, fallible father, say such a thing? It's not your law. It's not your commandments, they're God's commandments. And how can you add long life to them? How can you add long life to your children? You don't know what God has planned for them. How can a dad say such a thing? And then I want to tie this eventually to a somewhat equally puzzling phrase that Paul re repeats in a number of his letters where he refers to the gospel and he says, my gospel or our gospel. And, and again, it's, one of the, it's, a, it's a similar sort of idea and it's tempting to say, but Paul, it's not your gospel. It's God's gospel that he saved you with. It's not your gospel. Maybe this is going to be confusing, Paul, or Solomon. Maybe it seems arrogant. You should be a little more clear, probably, that it's not your law, it's not your commandments, it's not your gospel, it's God's law, it's God's gospel. Wouldn't that be more clear? Wouldn't that be more careful? So I want to work through Proverbs 3, just somewhat more thematically than, than verse by verse, but we'll, we'll handle the whole, uh, the whole text together. And I want, to, I, want to, I want to try to answer that question this morning. So the exhortations in our text are to um, perhaps rather abstract virtues. So if you're reading through the text, there's a number of virtues that, are, uh, that the son is exhorted to. Mercy, truth, trust, fear, honor, as you work your way through those verses. But one of the striking things is that all of those somewhat abstract virtues are all tied to very concrete, intensely concrete, um, even sort of bodily items, earthy items, like days and hearts and necks and eyes and bones and barns and wine. Right? So you have, on the one hand, these somewhat abstract virtues, ideas, you might say, mercy and truth. What exactly is mercy and truth or honor or fear? But in every, nearly every verse, those 
somewhat abstract virtues are tied to something very concrete. Keep my, keep my law, my commandments, they will add many days to your life. Let not mercy and truth forsake thee. Bind them around your neck, write them on your heart. Even the idea of writing something on a heart is very concrete and bodily. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths, roads, trails. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Depart from evil. It shall be health to your navel. Sort of earthy. And marrow to your bones. Honor the Lord with your substance, with the first fruits of your increase. So, So shall thy barns be filled with plenty, and the presses shall burst out with new wine. So this sets up the equation between the idea of virtue and practical actions and decisions, or we might say virtue is embodied. So throughout this text, the father is urging the son and all of us then to embrace certain virtues, but he's, he's pointing at very concrete things, concrete decisions, a concrete way of embodying these virtues. The other thing we see in this text is that there are uh, five admonitions And each exhortation is followed by a concrete promise of blessing. So again, you can work your way through and those those concrete embodiments of the virtues are actually concrete blessings that the Father says are going to come with obedience. So do not forget the law, he says, will result in length of days. So the blessing of obedience, the blessing of embracing these virtues is very concrete and again embodied. If you keep mercy and truth, if you bind them around your neck, you will find favor in the sight of God and man. Verse 3 and 4. Trust in the Lord. And what will happen? He will make your paths straight. He will direct your paths. That's verse 5 and 6. Fear the Lord, and the promise is good health. That's why he's talking about bones and belly buttons. He's talking about your body being healthy and strong, verses 7 and 8. And then honor the Lord with your substance, and and the, the promise is full barns and good wine. Again, concrete blessings, embodied blessings. So without reducing virtue to some kind of mechanical lever. We we know that that's not what the Bible teaches, and that's not what Solomon is teaching, that there's some kind of mechanical lever and you just do this and out comes this blessing. It's still true to say that virtue, goodness, godliness is embodied, and the blessing that follows virtue is also embodied, either now or ultimately in the resurrection. Jesus even says this in Mark 10, all those who have given up Mothers and fathers and husbands and wives and children and lands and all these things for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of the gospel, will receive back 10, 50, 100 fold, both now with persecutions and in the life to come. So Jesus himself even promises the same thing to those who obediently follow Jesus and give up much. He doesn't say, good, you didn't want that stuff anyways. He says, it will be given back to you.
And so we can see that virtue is embodied and the blessing that follows from virtue is embodied. And then we see this even one, once more underlined in the last two verses that we read, verses 11 and 12, the father then reappears at the end of our text, claiming that his discipline is the embodiment of the Lord's loving discipline. Verses 11, 12, my son, despise not the chastening of the Lord. This is that repeat of my son. We saw that back at verse one. Despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction for whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth even as a father, the son in whom he delighteth. The father is saying, I, I am the embodiment of the Lord's chastening in your life, son. I have been, I am the embodiment of the Lord's chastening in your life. Now, the idea that virtue is embodied actually makes sense and is somewhat easier to understand, but the question is, how does the father rightly claim that his discipline is the Lord's discipline and that his son should keep his law? And back, back to verse one again. Is it right, is it good for the dad to say, keep my law? Don't forget my law. Let your heart keep my commandments. And when I discipline you, it is the Lord's discipline. Shouldn't the father make it clear that it really isn't his law? It's rather the Lord's law. And his discipline is really only as good as it agrees with God's discipline. Wouldn't that be more clear to say? Sometimes I mess up, son, and, and my discipline isn't faithful, but I'm trying really hard. Help me out here. That probably doesn't flow as well in the Hebrew, but that's... You know, wouldn't that be a little bit more honest about the discipline, really? But instead, he says, this is my law. These are my commandments. Keep them. If you keep my law and my commandments, you will have a long life. It will go well with you. And when I'm disciplining you, you need to receive it as the Lord's discipline. Is that really wise? Related is also the fact that the father, again, is promising this long life and peace, which, of course, the father may be able to influence but we know the father cannot infallibly deliver this. Is it really wise for Solomon or any father to speak this way? Surely part of the answer is found in the words of Moses in the giving of the law. Remember in Deuteronomy 6, where Moses has re repeated the law, he's given the law again in, in Deuteronomy 5, and then just after this, uh, Moses says, gives the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul. He says, and these words which I command you today, let them be in your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your children and you will bind them as a, as a sign on your hand. He goes on to promise blessings that will come with that. So part of the, the answer to our question is, well, Moses commanded the dads to do this. Moses commanded the fathers to love God with all that they are. Let them, the law be in their heart, teach them diligently to their children, bind them on their hands. So a faithful father was commanded by God to embrace the law of God and bind it to himself and teach it diligently to his children. 
And so a faithful father believes God's promise for long life and peace and prosperity as he's keeping covenant with God and keeping the law of God. And so, again, so as far as the father is representing God's law accurately, the father can relay this as his own possession. He's embraced God's law. He's embraced God's word. And so now he's, he's relaying this to his son as something that he got from God or he got from his father. And so it's something of his own possession. And he says, here, keep this just as I have kept it. That seems to be part of the answer. Yeah. Part of the answer is that as you, as a father, you as a parent have embraced God's law, you've loved God with all that you are, and, and you've, it's become your possession, you've bound it to your heart, you've bound it to your neck, then what you're passing on to your children is something that has become part of you. That's part of the answer. The, the second admonition, though, verse 3, suggests that there's even more going on. Solomon says, let not mercy and truth forsake thee, bind them around thy neck, write them on the table of thine heart. So if the first exhortation reminds us of God's law, the Torah, the Ten Commandments, the covenant that God made with his people at Sinai, this combination, mercy and truth, is an interesting phrase in the Bible. It seems to be shorthand for covenant blessing, covenant life, mercy and truth. And so this is a a phrase that actually shows up all through the Old Testament a number of times, seemingly describing what it means to walk in the covenant, to be under God's blessing, mercy and truth, mercy and truth. So we see this in Genesis 24 when the servant of Abraham blesses God for not forsaking his mercy and truth to Abraham by leading him right to Rebekah's family. Remember that when Abraham sent his servant and says, you got to find a wife for Isaac. I mean, what a job, right? And sending him, he's, you know, you got to go to this land, to these people, find a wife for my son. And so he's praying all the way there, wanting to, to fulfill this. And God leads him right to Rebekah. And right to Rebecca's family. And so he blesses God for not forsaking his mercy and truth. Or in Psalm 25, David sings, All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. If you have time later on, I listed a number of other verses in the outline where um, that phrase, mercy and truth, are repeated over and over again in context of God's covenant faithfulness, God's covenant blessings on his people. But in Proverbs 16, Solomon says that by mercy and truth, atonement is provided for sin. Atonement is provided for sin. Again, That's really concrete. How how is mercy and truth up there, God's covenant faithfulness, God's covenant blessings, how is atonement provided for sin through mercy and truth? The word atonement, in the Old Testament at least, should right away remind us of the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was. Remember the tabernacle and the temple had three areas. There was a courtyard, there was a holy place, and in the middle of it was this this most holy place, or the Holy of Holies, where the Ark was, that golden box. And it had a a, a lid of pure gold, and, and there were cherubim formed out of pure gold that were on the on the on the top of that 
lid and it sat on top of the box in the most holy place and only one person could go into that room one time a year on the day of atonement. Many of our modern uh, calendars mark this actually for Jews who still celebrate this. So sometimes you'll see the little phrase Yom Kippur on your calendar. Remember as a kid thinking, what in the world? It's that, that means literally day of atonement. It's Hebrew. Or day of the covering. But it, it's day of atonement. And so in the Old Testament, when you hear the word atonement, you should be thinking if, if you're a Hebrew, if you're Israelite, if you're Jew, you think the day of atonement, mercy and truth provide atonement for sin. That golden lid that was pure gold was called the mercy seat. And one day a year on the day of atonement, the priest went in and sprinkled blood on the mercy seat, on the top of that golden lid, right below the golden cherubim. But that's not all. Underneath that mercy seat, inside the box, were the Ten Commandments that God had made. You see this in Exodus 25, 21. You see this in Hebrews 9, 3, and 4. And so, actually, right there in the Holy of Holies, you have the mercy seat, you have the mercy of God, and right below it, you have what? The Ten Commandments. You have the truth of God. Right? The word of God, the truth of God. And so right there in the most holy place is the mercy and truth of God. Right there in the holy place, in the most holy place. The mercy and truth of God, where God's mercy and truth come together. The Ten Commandments tell the truth about God's righteousness, and then God provides a covering with the blood of another. So all of this, of course, ultimately pointed to Jesus. It pointed specifically to his cross, where the mercy and truth about our sin and his merciful sacrifice for it were revealed. On the cross, you have God's mercy and truth. How is the cross God's truth? The cross is God's truth because it tells the truth about our sin. It tells the truth about what our sin deserves. Our sin is shameful. Our sin is guilty. Our sin is rebellion. Our sin is criminal. It deserves to die. And so the cross tells the truth about our sin. It's God's truth. But simultaneously, what is Jesus doing? Jesus is taking the penalty, taking the shame, taking the rejection. He's also God's mercy. And so centuries before, in this little tent and later in the temple, one day a year, God was picturing what he would do. Mercy and truth. Mercy and truth, telling the truth about God's righteousness, telling the truth about our sin, and providing a merciful covering, a merciful sacrifice, ultimately pointing to Jesus. Jesus is our ark. Jesus is our mercy seat. He is our throne of grace in a time of need. And so Jesus is the embodiment of mercy and truth. He is the embodiment of mercy and, mercy and truth were initially embodied in a golden box with blood sprinkled on top, behind curtains. But now mercy and truth are embodied in a man named Jesus. So when the Father says, let not mercy and truth forsake thee, bind them about thy neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. He was actually ultimately saying, bind Jesus 
around your neck. Write Jesus on the tablet of your heart. Embrace Jesus. Embrace God's mercy and truth. But I want to return to our question again. I'm, I'm, I'm hopefully not losing you, but I'm, I want to, I'm holding a bunch of these pieces. I'm hauling them out, and then I, hopefully I want to connect them all for you in a helpful way. I want to ask the question again. So why does the father point to himself in the first instance? Why does he say, my, my son, forget not my law, but let thine heart keep my commandments? Why does the father not immediately point away to God, keep the law of God that I learned, son? Why not say it like that? Well, of course, part of the answer is that if you keep reading through the rest of the text, some of you were reading ahead and saying, well, he actually does point to God as you get further into the text. He does point to the Lord as he goes on. Understand, favor and good understanding in the sight of God. Trust in the Lord. He's clearly not teaching the son to trust in his dad. He says, trust in the Lord. He says, fear the Lord, verse 7. Verse 9 says, honor the Lord. So clearly he is pointing away to the Lord. And so every father should do the same. But again, still, the father still feels very comfortable calling the law my law and likening his instruction and his discipline to the correction and chastening of the Lord. Why does Solomon feel so comfortable doing that? I believe the answer is found in God's determination that discipleship be intensely personal and therefore embodied. God is determined to pass on truth, pass on the gospel, pass on faithfulness through people, through the embodiment of truth, through the embodiment of virtue in people. Discipleship is teaching virtues such as truth and mercy and obedience and honor, but those virtues need to be embodied. They need to be embodied uh, with people who make choices and decisions and, and live out their faith in their lives. Christian discipleship does look to the Lord, of course. Christian discipleship does look to Christ, of course. But Jesus sent men out to disciple all the nations. You disciple the nations. You preach the gospel and you disciple the nations. You show them how to follow me. Therefore, discipleship is also simultaneously includes immediate human relationships. People cannot be discipled apart from human relationships. They're not ordinarily discipled apart from human relationships like father and son. The striking thing is that Jesus embodies this himself in the first instance as the incarnate son. He comes and embodies the perfect son of the perfect father. This is the gospel. And so the scribes and the Pharisees were scandalized by his insistence that he is the embodiment of the father. If I and my father are one. And the scribes and Pharisees Go nuts. Follow me, he says. Follow me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except 
through me. Of course, we, we frequently say, but that's because Jesus is God. <laughs> he's deity, he's God, he's the only way to the Father, and that's true. Jesus is God, and so there are particular things he says that we can't say, that would not be true of us. And at the same time, Jesus also indicates that what he came to do as an ambassador of his father, he intends to pass on to his disciples. The atonement, of course, and the deity part is, of course, unique to Jesus. He's not passing deity on to us. He's not passing on the, the task of atonement to us. That's unique to his office and his calling as the eternal son of God. And yet at the same time, he intends to pass on to his disciples and then on to us a role that mimics him, that imitates him. And he does this by promising to send us the spirit of the father. So he calls disciples away from their earthly fathers and their fishing boats and their fishing nets, and he says he will make them fishers of men. But if we're reading the story rightly, we might also say that he's called them to become fathers of men. What does Jesus do? He shows up and he says, I'm, I'm gonna, I've got a new job for you. And they, what do they do? They leave their fathers. Who, who has the prerogative to say, I know what you would be good at. In fact, I know what your name is. That's the job of dads, right? That's the job, job of fathers. And Jesus says, I've got a new job for you. And then he starts renaming the disciples as if they're his own sons. He says, now you see what I've just done for you. Now you're going to go and do that for others. I've called you to become fishers of men. I've called you to become fathers of men, just like me. And so we see this actually explicitly in Paul's own ministry. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 4, he says, I don't write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I'm warning you. Notice that, they're his children. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. And we say, Paul, hold on, that's a little bit intense. It was God who begot them. Paul says, no, I begot you through the gospel. When I preached the gospel to you, you came alive in Christ. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me, Paul says. For this reason, I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. So as Jesus called the first disciples, follow me, Paul does the same and says, follow me, and sent Timothy who represented him, who presumably would say, follow me. As I follow Paul, as I follow Christ, as we follow God together. And so do every faithful Christian. Father, pastor, brother, friend, disciple. We have a particular calling to do this in our offices. The reason why it's perfectly good and right for Solomon to say, my son, do not forget my law. Do not forget my commandments, 
for length of days and long life and peace shall they add to thee. And, and it's perfectly good and right for him to say, and when I discipline you, this is the discipline of the Lord. This is the discipline of God because he loves you. The reason why this is perfectly reasonable is because God's intention has always been to save and call particular people. And he doesn't just call them and save them and, and sort of hold them at arm's length. He always pulls them in and he binds himself to them. He calls them to bind his word to their necks, to their hearts, bind me to you because I'm in the process of binding myself to you such that where you go, I go. Who you speak to, I am with you as you stand there speaking to them such that the, 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 this is not an exaggeration at all for the father to said, say, this is my law. It didn't originate with me. I got it from God. But he bound himself to me, and I bound him to me, and so what I'm giving you is me. There's no distance. I'm not talking about something I know about. I'm talking about something I've become. I've become a son of the Father. And so now my son, listen to my law. Listen to my commandments. When I discipline you, I discipline you as a father of his son in whom he delights, as God disciplines us. Every Christian has this general calling to share this gospel, the gospel of the Father and the Son. You see, if you know the Father through the Son, if you've been given the Spirit of the Father and the Son, this gospel has become your gospel. It's not a gospel you know about. It's a gospel that has come and taken up residence inside you now. Now it's, it's being embodied by you. Whether you were saved when you were two or six months or 75 or 35 or 19, Jesus came and took up residence in you. The spirit of the father and the son has now, he's embodying his life in you. And now that story of the gospel coming to be embodied in you is your gospel. It's your embodiment that God's giving to you to share. Now the gospel is embodied in you and in your story. And so this is why I began this message telling you a short version of my testimony, which happens to be bound up with my biological dad. But for many of you, your testimony may include many other fathers or mothers, brothers or sisters who begot you through the gospel. What did they give to you? They gave to you what God had given to them. They shared with you what God had done in them. They told you what God had made true in them. This is what God has done for me. And so knowing that God has done this for me means I know that he can do it for you. And this is why I believe Paul frequently refers to the gospel as my gospel. God so fully got hold of him and it was so intertwined with his story. I mean, he tells it three times in the course of Acts. He tells his story of God, Jesus meeting with him on the road to Damascus, my gospel. Let me tell you it again. This is what happened is crazy. This is my gospel that I preach to you. This is how Paul begets new children through the gospel. 
Because we have been given the spirit of the Father and the Son, we have access to the Father, and therefore we have boldness to represent him to others. This is what it means to be a Christian. That, that what is true about the gospel has become true of you. You have tasted mercy and truth. The perfect son and his obedience to the perfect father and the perfect father's delight in the perfect son has taken up residence in you, is being worked out in you. And so you can speak as a confident father. This is my mercy and truth. This is my law. These are my commandments. This is my glory. His mercy and truth have been bound around your neck, written on the tablet of your heart. His gospel is now your gospel. And so you can speak as a faithful son because you have been given the spirit of the perfect son. Whatever your story is, whether your biological parents were Christians or not, whether you can remember when you first trusted in Jesus or not, you have been given the spirit of the Father and the Son, and therefore this gospel is your gospel. It is the gospel embedded and embodied in you and in your life, and you are called, therefore, to share this with others. What's your gospel? Of course, I can say that, and it can sound like, you know, you get to make it up as you go along. That's not what I mean. That's not what Paul means. It's not as if you all can have your own versions. There's one gospel, and that one gospel has taken up residence in all these people. And, and while there's, of course, an important sense in which we could say that we love boring testimonies, you know, we say that sometimes, we, you know, we love boring testimonies. It's, you know, children, you're, you're told sometimes that you're, you're, it's your parents' job to make sure you have a boring testimony, meaning, you know, no high-handed rebellion and, you know, ended up in jail and, you know, that you don't need to be interrupted by Jesus on a road to Damascus somewhere. That's true. And it's wonderful. And I have a boring testimony like that. But there's also a sense in which there are no boring testimonies. Even the most boring testimony, if it's the real grace of God interrupting a fallen, damned human being, there's nothing boring about the death of Christ for a sinner. There's nothing boring about it. You say, yeah, your, your testimony is not exactly exciting, Pastor Toby. Falling down on a bike and going back and apologizing. I've fallen down on a bike before. But you know what? It's the grace of God. That's a miracle. It's a miracle to know you're a sinner in need of grace. It's a miracle. It's supernatural. It's like God parting the waves of a sea to know that you're a sinner because in your sin, you love your sin. You don't love God. You don't love his mercy. You don't love his grace and you're blind and you're deaf and you're dumb. It's worse, you're dead. And the only way you love Jesus is because God's raised you from the dead. That's miraculous. And you, and you say, but, but pastor, I don't remember. I mean, there was no bright lights. I didn't see any visions. Jesus didn't talk to me. Yeah, but do you love Jesus? Do you hate sin? Does sin make you feel disgusting? Then you're alive. And one time you were dead. 
That's a miracle. It's amazing. You may not remember it, but you were dead and now you're alive. And so if you understand this, whatever your testimony is, you need to learn to say with Jesus, come follow me. Keep my law and commandments. This is my gospel. Christ was crucified for sinners, raised from the dead for our justification. And here's how that has now taken shape in my life, in my family, in my story. Let me share that with you. Because it's miraculous. There's nothing natural about it. There's nothing ordinary about it. A couple years ago when our neighbors asked us about how we got into foster care, little did they know that they were asking us to share the story of God's grace in our life. Oh, you want to know about foster care? Because <laughs> we can't tell that story without talking about Jesus. Because that's part of our testimony. It's part of our gospel. So learn to say, my son, my daughter, my friend, my coworker, my brother, my sister, my neighbor, do not forget my law. Bind it around your neck. Write it on your heart. Do not forget my gospel, the gospel that you've seen in me, you've heard in me the work of Christ in me. Don't forget it. Write it down. Keep it. Follow me as I follow Christ. I love these words at the end of 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul has just finished telling his testimony again or a brief version of it. And he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Is that your testimony? By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than all the rest. Yet it was not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Learn to say that. By the grace of God, I am what I am. He saved me. He rescued me. He forgave me. He convicted me of my sin and opened my eyes, brought me back to life. This is my story. It's his story in you. Tell it. It's his story in you. It's his gospel in you. Tell it. Share it. His grace toward you was not in vain. He bound himself to you so that you might bind yourself to him. So that what is true of him would be true of you. So that what would be true of you would become true of many others. We're going to sing in a few minutes, I bind unto myself today the strong name of the Trinity. Christ be with me, Christ within me, Christ above me, Christ beneath me. And as you sing it, believe it. It's glorious, it's true. And if you know it, then it's yours and it's yours to share. Our God and Father, we praise you and we thank you that you did not merely come to save us at a distance you did not merely come to rescue us and then keep us in, in some kind of outhouse or seclusion, some place on the premises, but not too close. But Father, thank you that you saved us and you invited us in. Thank you that you saved us and you washed us clean and you brought us into a home. 
that you made us part of your family, that you did not merely uh, come near to us, but Father, you have determined to come into us, to bind yourself to us. Father, we confess that we barely understand what this means, but it's wonderful and it's glorious. And so we ask that you would teach us by your spirit and by your word to understand a little bit more of what it means that we belong to you, that you dwell in us so that what is true of you is now in some way is becoming true of us so that we can call others to see what you are doing in us and follow us as we follow you. Father, teach us to do this faithfully in our homes, in our places of work, in our neighborhoods. Father, we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the psalmist's account of Israel's exodus, we're told that they believed God's words and they sang his praise. But the psalmist goes on to underscore that they soon forgot his works and they waited not for his counsel. Psalm 106, 12 through 13. Scripture repeatedly commands us to forget not. Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God, Deuteronomy 8, 11. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, Psalm 103, 2. My son, forget not my law, but, keep, but let thine heart keep my commandments, Proverbs 3, 1. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased, Hebrews 13, 16. Right now, you are breathing the crisp, clear air of Mount Zion. But as you descend from the heights of worshiping in the shadow of the Most High, the air thickens. Our brains are muddled by the cares of life, the temptations of sin, the slog of routine. As one hymn that has put it, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And this is why we're reminded over and over again to remember, to not forget the covenantal union which joins us to Christ and Christ to us. Our weekly service culminates in the Lord's Supper precisely for this reason. It's a renewal and a reminder of the covenant which we are in. Christ commanded us to eat this meal in remembrance of him, and covenant renewal ensures that in the ebb and flow of our week, there's a liturgical reminder of whose we are and what we're called to. We belong to Christ. We are called accepted in the beloved. We are a holy people called to sing his praise, the praises of him who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So come in faith and welcome to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this meal that you've prepared for us, that you've set before us to remind us and to nourish us of the great work which your son did to redeem us, to cover our sins, to proclaim the gospel unto us, that we might be forgiven and given eternal life. We give thanks for it all in Jesus' mighty and most holy name. Amen. Remember that in the New Testament, uh, the word gospel is where we get the word evangelical or evangelized from. It's, it's used throughout as a noun. You know, uh, they, they went and they told the gospel, go and preach the gospel. But it's also, there's a, a verb form of it in the New Testament, eugaleizo, which, which means they, they went and preached the gospel. They went and did it. Uh, so just remember that the gospel is both a noun, the good news that Jesus came to forgive you of your sins and give you eternal life, but it's also a verb. And, and that's where we, we talk about evangelizing or, or being evangelical with our faith. So remember, you are to hear the gospel and receive the gospel, but you're also supposed to gospel and, and be gospeled and go gospel other people. So hear the benediction of the Lord. 
And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to God our Savior, Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Amen.